Hello. This is Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Michael Welch. We come to you from our broadcast studio this week at CKUW in Winnipeg, and we welcome listeners tuning into our show online or from our affiliated campus and community radio stations across Canada. On today's show, we will speak with York University political scientist and Canadian Dimension Collective member Dennis Pilon about the recently unveiled federal budget and what it reveals about Stephen Harper's plan for reshaping Canada. And the March-April issue of Canadian Dimension magazine is now out on the stand. Andrea Levy, the editor for that issue, will join us to talk about the degrowth movement, which is the theme of that issue. But first, here are the alert headlines for the week of April 5th. The 2012 federal budget released by the Conservatives last week attacks jobs, pensions, social programming, the public service, and environmental protection. Tabled as an austerity budget aimed at reducing the deficit, this is a budget that will most severely harm middle- and working-class Canadians while further concentrating wealth in the hands of the 1%. After all cuts, job losses will total over 70,000 full-time positions, which would push the unemployment rate in the country up to almost 8%. The cuts to old-age security effectively move the retirement age up to 67 from 65. In usual form, the Tories have revealed little about their plans to implement these cuts, leaving Canadians uncertain about their future. Fifty years ago, Dryden Chemicals dumped 10 tons of mercury into the Wabigoon River in Ontario, the main water source for the Grassy Narrows First Nation. Today, the community is still living through associated health, social, and economic effects and is calling on the Ontario government to fund a community-run environmental monitoring station to prevent future environmental destruction of their land. It was found a decade ago that almost 80% of members tested had Minamata disease, commonly called mercury poisoning. The First Nation currently won a court of appeal decision last month, which forbids logging on a section of Grassy Narrows territory without approval from the community. The University of Calgary and Enbridge Incorporated of the infamous Northern Gateway Pipeline opened the Enbridge Centre for Corporate Sustainability last week. As the company proposing a pipeline that supports one of the most environmentally destructive industries in our country, it's tough to see how this research centre will carry out its mission to produce work by graduate students and faculty on social, environmental and economic sustainability practices. This is the latest in Enbridge's greenwashing plans, who donated money to the University of Winnipeg earlier this year to start the Enbridge EcoKids, a program that teaches science and sustainability to inner-city kids. Palestinian leader Marwan Barghouti has been placed in solitary confinement after calling for a civil revolt against Israel. In the lead-up to Land Day, Barghouti called on the Palestinian Authority to abandon the peace process and sever all ties with Israel in order to effectively oppose the occupation. It must be understood that there is no partner for peace in Israel when the settlements have doubled, he said. The launch of large-scale 
popular resistance at this stage serves the cause of our people. Bargudi, who is often considered the leader of the first and second intifadas, is currently serving five consecutive life sentences in an Israeli jail. A massive general strike in Spain last week shut down railway stations, factories, and government offices as Spaniards across the country protested a day before the country released the most severe austerity budget in Europe. The budget calls for a total cut of 27 billion euros, including freezing wages for civil servants, while requiring them to work 10 additional hours each month and a 17% reduction in government spending. The government has already passed massive wage cuts in the country. Unemployment in Spain is the highest in the EU at 23.3%. In the first step towards tackling student debt in the United States, the Obama administration proposed a policy that requires debt collectors to generate student loan repayments based on the borrower's income, not debt size. The government contracts collection services out to private companies who, under this legislation, would use a standard collection form that tracks borrowers' income and expenses. Income-based payments can be as low as $50 per month for a borrower making $20,000 a year. Student loans recently surpassed credit card debt as the leading cause of consumer debt in the country. George Galloway won the by-election in Bradford West in Northern England, a victory many believe embodies a general disillusionment with mainstream politics. Galloway traced his victory back to the treason of Tony Blair in the 90s and the ways Labour has turned its back on their traditional supporters. Running for the Respect Party and winning with over 50% of the votes, Galloway called for the immediate withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan and promised to oppose a war in Iran. Those were the alert headlines. And now for Around the Left for the week of April 5th, 2012. On Saturday, April 7th, in Winnipeg, the Canada-Palestine Support Network, Winnipeg, presents Dance Down the Wall 7, an event to help raise funds for humanitarian aid and relief efforts in the Gaza Strip and elsewhere in Palestine. Dance Down the Wall will take place from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. at Low Pub at 330 Kennedy Street and will feature music by DJ Co-op, Clash, and Cooks and others. Admission is $10. For more information, search for the event page on Facebook or email canpalnetwinnipeg at yahoo.ca. For those in Toronto on April 12th, come out for an evening of discussion on Sri Lanka with Dr. Jude Lal Fernando, a research fellow lecturer at Trinity College in Dublin. Dr. Jude is from southern Sri Lanka and one of the founding members of the Irish Peace Forum for Sri Lanka. This forum will take place at 6.30 p.m. in room 5230 of the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education in Toronto. Attend the Ontario Day of Action Against Cuts on April 21st at 3 o'clock p.m. at Queen's Park in Toronto. 
Premier McGinty put banker Don Drummond in charge of recommending nearly 400 cuts to jobs and public services in Ontario. At a time when Ontarians are in desperate need of economic recovery, these cuts will jeopardize every aspect of society. The Ontario Federation of Labour, OFL, is working with community groups and organizations across Ontario to call on workers, retirees, students, and community members to join a mass rally to demand prosperity, not austerity. Help to mobilize your members, your families, and your communities to stop the cuts and put Ontario on the road to economic recovery. Our collective future depends on it. Tell Premier McGinty to build Ontario, not tear it apart. For those in Winnipeg, on April 22nd, take to the streets for the ninth annual 7th Generation Walk for Mother Earth in support of grassroots Indigenous-led campaigns to preserve the Earth for future generations. There will be speakers at Central Park from 1 to 2 p.m., followed by a walk to the Forks via Memorial Park. The walk will arrive at the Udina Circle at the Forks at 3.30 p.m. for the annual Spring Water Ceremony and a free picnic. This is a garbage-free family event. Bring drums, banners, cups, plates, and voices. The 11th Annual Graduate Conference in Communication and Culture at York University and Ryerson University, titled Intersections 2012 Occupations, will take place April 27th to 29th at Ryerson University in Toronto. The unfolding events at Occupy Wall Street and elsewhere present possibilities for new politics and new forms of learning from living with and engaging each other. Keynote speakers will be Brian Holmes and Sarah Sharma of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. For information on presentations, email intersections.occupations at gmail.com. Toronto's 26th Annual Socialist May Day Celebration, Fighting for the 99%, will take place April 28th from 7 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Speakers will include Jorge Soberon, Consul General of Cuba in Toronto, John Clark of the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, Farid Ayad, National President of the Canadian Arab Federation, There will be entertainment and delicious food and drinks. For details, call the Free Times Cafe at 416-967-1078. There will also be a literature and CDs display, a raffle, and other surprises. Admission is $10, $5 for non-waged, or pay what you can. That's all for Around the Left for this week. Changes to old age security, as well as changes to environmental assessments, and the loss of the penny are just a few of the features that are uh, being introduced in the latest budget by the federal conservative government. Is this budget going to make much of a difference as far as the Canadians are concerned? What impact will it have on the national landscape? To try to address these sorts of questions, we're joined on the line by York University political scientist and Canadian Dimension Collective member, 
Dennis Pilon. So, Dennis, uh, thank you for joining us. Could you uh, maybe give us uh, your impressions of this budget? Uh, how, how concerned should Canadians be about it? Well, I think they should be very concerned. Um, the Harper Conservatives, you know, they learned the lessons from the Reform Party, which is don't come right out uh, like a bull in the china shop uh, and say, you know, we're going to do X, Y, Z. Sort of slip it in, you know, under under the sheets, around the corner, in the dark. You know, don't let anybody really know what you've what you've planned to do. Uh, I think a lot of people were worried that when Harper came to power with the majority, we would see immediately some draconian policies. And I think instead what we're seeing is the beginning of their agenda. They, they've taken some strategic uh, uh, decisions to move their agenda forward. And they're aided by what they perceive to be the present political climate. You know, the economy's in the dumper, uh, the, the deficits and debts look high. They're certainly always showcased on the news with alarming numbers you know, to people who don't understand the kinds of money that, that governments play with. Um, and so then they start to look prudent by making the kind of cuts that they, they're making. And they hit all the right buttons for the things that people are unhappy about. You know, unresponsive bureaucracies that are, you know, fat and, you know, not working very hard. You know, this is the kind of discourse that they push. Meanwhile, if we look at the details of the things that they're doing, uh, there's some very alarming developments. I mean, certainly uh, gutting uh, many of the environmental provisions uh, in favor of, uh, of what industry wants is obviously of, of concern to anyone who, who's worried about the environment. Um, reducing uh, uh, pension entitlements, uh, making it harder for people to collect their pensions, you know, that's obviously a real concern because there's a lot of pensioners uh, who rely on that check to make their lives work. Uh, so I think in, a, in an idea like death by a thousand cuts, uh, that's what we're seeing here with the Conservatives. And this is their first budget with a majority. And uh, as you were indicating, this is uh, they're sort of showing their uh, uh, true colors in a sense, but doing it in a sneaky way. Are, are, were you kind of talking, uh, I'm, I'm reminded of that uh, line by Naomi Klein, uh, that shock doctrine. Or is this possibly a, an application of that idea? Well, I, I think it's actually the opposite. I think that today's conservatives have learned that you need to judge your audience, how much your audience can take. You risk scuttling what you want to do if you go too far too fast. Mulroney learned that when he tried to de-index pensions very early in his first term. I mean, here was a guy, he had a massive majority. Uh, he'd won nearly 50% of the vote. So he felt pretty confident that he could do whatever he wanted and then found himself on the ropes uh, over the, the pension issue. So I think that's where uh, the Harper Conservatives, they're testing the waters on a few hot-button issues to see, to try to gauge the public's reaction. Now, the unfortunate thing is that today's news media is, is not even the news media of the 1980s. So uh, some of the channels and feedback mechanisms that hit uh, Mulroney pretty hard are not there uh, today. I mean, today's media have got a tin ear when it comes to uh, neoliberal uh, budget cuts uh, and how they affect average Canadians. Could you give us an example of where you see the media uh, questions they should be asking but are not with relation to this budget? Well, I mean, I, I think when we look at the beneficiaries of the last 25 years of supply-side economics, uh, constant tax cuts to the wealthy, uh, it's pretty obvious uh, who's benefited from it. Uh, now we're facing a pretty severe economic crisis, particularly for youth. Uh, youth have got catastrophic unemployment rates across Western countries, and it's pretty bad here in Canada as well. But who's being asked 
to to make uh, the the uh, who to take on the pain. Right when you've got a crisis, you turn around, and you say to okay, well, what can everybody do to help us get through this? But you know, are are the people who can carry the burden taking their fair share? Clearly not. And yet, our media seem blissfully unaware of this. Uh, I was on a budget show uh, here in Ontario, responding to the Ontario budget, and the anchor on the news show said, "Well, you know, good news. There's no new taxes." Well, wait a minute. New taxes would be good news if they were applied to the right people. I mean, the rich, of course, would like to see taxes applied to everybody else, and everybody else should like to see the rich bear more responsibility uh, for the economy that's disproportionately benefiting them. To pretend that you know everybody benefits from you know tax cuts or tax increases is just well idiotic <laughs> on the face of it, and yet that's the line that our media regularly peddle in a populist way to the public. Well, one another line that you hear from the media. Uh, or from media pundits, is that uh, this uh, budget is not as uh, hard as the uh, Martin Kretchen uh, budget of 1995. Uh, do you suppose that's accurate? You know, I, I think you'd need someone who could really boil down the numbers for you in terms of comparing the Kretchen budget to this one, and, I, and I'm not that person. Um, I, I think that most of the, the public policy analysts would say that the cuts that Mulroney made in 92 and 93 to the transfers to the provinces were pretty severe uh, and threw a lot of provincial economies into shock, including, again, you know, the, the Ray NDP government in Ontario had to do a complete U-turn in the face of those cuts. Uh, so I don't see that happening, um, but I do see a budget that is attacking on a number of fronts. So instead of going right after the social programs directly, what we're seeing are some more subtle mechanisms being, being used. So, for instance, tying uh, increases in the health budgets to some sort of fixed rate, which, you know, Flaherty brought out before this budget. I mean, that's a very subtle way of not appearing to say, you know, we're going to cut everything. But on the other hand, uh, to, to, to put a fixed amount on it uh, means that they may not be able to cope with the increases. Uh, so that is a cut. Uh, you know, you're not calling it that, uh, but that's what it'll end up being. So, I mean, I think in terms of the range of things that this government is doing with this budget, gutting environmental and industry uh, regulation, uh, cutting uh, money to the CBC, not that they've been doing such a great job, but I still believe a public broadcaster is, is better than no public broadcaster, um, making uh, some of the cuts to pensions, uh, it, it, it all adds up to some, some pretty major changes. Dennis, um, this is being called a uh, not just a, a yearly a year, one-year budget or even a, a decade budget, but a generational budget. Could you uh, maybe give us your sense of uh, where Canada is headed under this budget? Like, what is our country going to look like, uh, say, 10, 20 years down the pike? Well, in a way, this budget is the culmination of a generation of getting people ready for neoliberalism. So we've heard the rhetoric from the right-wing politicians. The media have largely adopted that rhetoric. It's become the common sense of our age. And so now it's, it's being implemented at a level that, that w wasn't seen as possible before. Uh, so in that sense, I mean, the conservatives benefit from the fact that almost all the other parties are, are, are trotting out the same line, you know, a line that only the far right uh, said, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. But now, you know, from the NDP uh, to uh, the liberals, you know, all of them seem to be on side, though they disagree about the degree of cuts that, that might be uh, necessary. Um, 
the, the long-term effects of this, well, I mean, uh, if, if young people can't get a job, uh, can't build their future, uh, can't uh, you know, get ready to take on the responsibilities of adulthood, that's going to have devastating effects uh, over the next uh, few decades. Uh, and then as those approach retirement, it sounds like there's not going to be much there uh, for, for that generation either. You know, we, we don't get out of paying the costs of a society. Conservatives are, are really unrealistic this way. They seem to think that we can um, have a, a, a dynamic modern society but not pay the cost. It's, we're just shifting the cost somewhere else, right? We'll have more police enforcement, more jails, you know, more social difficulties. That's the future with this kind of vision from the conservatives. Dennis, the uh, NDP now has a new leader, and uh, he is, uh, became leader just in time for this budget uh, do you have any uh, thoughts about his response to this budget? I think that we can expect Mulcair to be strong on the environmental issues and go after the government about regulation. I mean, I think he's got a track record on that. That's been an issue very close to his heart. You know, he resigned his position in the Sheree Liberal government uh, over those kinds of questions. So I think we can expect to see some, some solid pushback uh, on those aspects. And a lot of people will respond to that, regardless of whether they're neoliberals. On the neoliberal question, you know, this is a, a harder one. Uh, to respond to. I mean, I suspect that Mulcair, like Layton, has been playing a kind of modernization, mainstream game where they try to sort of out-fiscal the fiscal conservatives. You know, we're good money managers too, say the New Democrats. Um, you know, who will speak up for uh, what we actually need? And I think that uh, if we look at evidence, the evidence is that the tax structure we have is unsustainable. We cannot continue uh, to cut taxes to the wealthy, or we can see where this is going. Very few rich, a whole lot of everybody else. Is the NDP under Mulcair ready to forward that vision? I don't think so. Um, not that I think many of the other candidates were prepared to do that either, barring maybe Peggy Nash. And, uh, of course, the, the, the catchphrase that we've heard in all things related to the economy is austerity, austerity, austerity. So uh, is it your impression, then, that that... Um that mantra has uh, just taken over our public debate and uh, that we're not going to be able to get past it? Well, again, when we, when we have a public that seems unaware of history, and, and of course helped in that by its media and by its popular culture, uh, I mean, for someone like myself, trained in a historical background, this is the new depression. I mean, this austerity, austerity, that sounds like 1930 to me, uh, and the same kind of, of narrow... Uh, a view that said, well, we'll just cut, you know, funding to everything and somehow the economy will right itself. Well, that didn't occur, uh, you know, in the 30s. Uh, it took a world war in the 40s to kind of pull us out. Uh, but now, once again, we're hearing that this is the solution. Uh, so I, th I think the time is ripe for a breakthrough in um, uh, critical thinking that can, can find its way into the public discourse. It's a challenge, but then again, you know, in the 1930s and 40s, it's not like our media were, were bending over backwards to publish critical ideas, and yet people still found out about them. So I think that's our challenge right now is how can we get some of these critical ideas uh, into the common sense of, of Canadians' thinking. Dennis Pilon, it's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you once again for sharing your insights with us. Thanks for having me. And Alert has been speaking with Dennis Pilon. He's a York University political scientist and a contributor to Canadian Dimension magazine.
The notion that human civilization is surpassing the carrying capacity of the planet is getting more attention these days. A movement that originated in France has made its way to Canada and is challenging the idea that our economy can and should continue to grow forever. The March-April edition of Canadian Dimension magazine has just been released. This month's issue is dedicated to the concept of degrowth. In the introduction, Canadian Dimension contributor and editor for this issue, Andrea Levy, writes, All but the plain stupid or willfully blind by now recognize that unfettered by concern for the survival needs of planetary ecosystems, economic growth, and its symbiont, the consumer society, is suicidal for the human species and genocidal for countless others. To tell us more about degrowth and what we can look forward to in this month's issue, we're joined by Andrea Levy herself. So thank you for joining us, Andrea. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, well, you, those are pretty strong words that you're using. Um, could you maybe just tell us a little bit uh, about uh, precisely what you mean by degrowth? Okay, well, uh, degrowth, which is actually a translation from the much more mellifluous French word décroissance, has a, a rich history, and uh, it's a still-evolving concept that's been informed by dozens of pioneering minds. Um, we can find intimations of the idea at least as far back as the mid-19th century with the writings of the great liberal philosopher John Stuart Mill, who wrote about what he called the stationary state. And Mill asked what the ultimate point was of industrial progress. Like many economists before him, he believed that economic growth wasn't boundless, but unlike them, he didn't think that the eventual end of economic expansion spelled doom and gloom for humanity. In a remarkably prescient section of the principles of political economy, he also envisioned the possibility of growth ravaging the natural world, and he argued that the way to counter the unintended consequences and limits to growth was through fairer distribution of wealth combined with prudence and frugality, as well as a system of legislation favoring what he called equality of fortunes. But... Um, Mill's ideas about the stationary state are just one of the many streams of thought that have nourished the development of the concept of degrowth, which is still unfolding and remains the subject of a very lively debate, which is why I can't offer you a precise definition of the term. But in all its variants, it's a response to the clear collision course that humanity is on with the biophysical limits of the planet. And it advocates in one form or another the downsizing or downscaling of production and consumption particularly in the over-consuming global north. Yeah. Now, our current system uh, demands, our current economic system demands that we grow the economy. Uh, is there a, a simple way that we could uh, disentangle that system so that we're not compelled to continue to grow more in order to uh, you know, pay back the various assets that, uh, you know, in investments and so on and so forth? Well, that's really, that's really the aim of the degrowth movement, is to figure out ways where we can disentangle uh, growth from, from the perverse consequences of it. Um, and one of the interesting debates within the degrowth movement has to do with capitalism. Um, if we understand growth as the lifeline of capitalism, then the question arises whether downscaling has to mean the end of capitalism. And there are some thinkers who are affiliated with the degrowth movement, um, one of them being Serge Latouche, who's really one of the, one of the progenitors of the concept of degrowth, uh, especially on the European continent. And 
they suggest that um, we have to see degrowth as inherently anti-capitalist. But there are others who envision the downsizing of capitalism itself, uh, such as Herman Daly, who was at one time the senior economist in the environmental department of the World Bank, and um, he elaborated the idea of the steady-state economy. So there's a, there's a very interesting debate within the degrowth movement itself about how you can arrive at um, a more eco-sized economy, if you like. Uh, it, it seems as if you find that uh, there's a, a consensus among mainstream economists, both on the right and the left, as to the uh, importance of growing the economy. Uh, do you... Uh, how realistic is it to assume that uh, we could ever get uh, that change of consciousness uh, arising? Is it being motivated by anything uh, we're seeing in the world today? Um, well, I can tell you that in its recent environmental outlook to 2050, the OECD, which is not exactly a subversive outfit, warned, and I'm quoting now, the current growth model and the mismanagement of natural assets could ultimately undermine human development. Um, that's the OECD. So I think it's becoming clearer to everyone that we can't continue our never-ending economic expansion without ultimately running out of resources and destroying the ecosystemic services on which we depend, not to mention wiping out countless other species with whom we ought to be sharing the planet. Um, I think there is a growing consciousness. Whether it's realistic to assume that uh, that we're going to be able to coordinate some kind of grand-scale downscaling, that's an open question. I, I tend to be rather pessimistic, but I think that we, we need to try because really the fate of all humanity depends on it as well as all the other species because the, the planet has limits and we can't grow uh, endlessly without, without exploding those limits. Andrea, can you tell us about uh, some of the uh, stories that are in this upcoming issue of uh, Canadian Dimension? Sure. Um, well, we, we have a, an interesting number of contributors. Um, for instance, Peter Victor, who's uh, an ecological economist at York University and the author of Managing Without Growth. And in his, in his contribution, he explains the concept of uneconomic growth the idea that at a certain point economic growth can have diminishing returns and it can ultimately become counterproductive to human well-being. And he makes the case that we've reached that point. And he looks at how we might redefine progress in terms that take into account the, the, the dark side of growth. Um, and then we have Louis Marion, who's an independent scholar, and uh, he's involved in the Mouvement Québécois pour une décroissance conviviale, which is a Quebec organization founded in 2007 to raise awareness of the dangers of the unmitigated pursuit of growth and to explore alternatives. And in his article, he looks at some of the basic ideas uh, underlying the degrowth concept, particularly as it's developed in the works of Serge Latouche. And then uh, we have Arthur Schaefer, who's the director of the Center for Professional and Applied Ethics at the University of Manitoba, and he's written an eloquent retrospective of Fred Hirsch's 1976 book, The Social Limits to Growth, um, which was an analysis of the failings of the consumer society centered on the perverse effects of the unlimited pursuit of what he called positional goods or goods that are in short supply. Um, Do you see any, uh, is there any, does this issue touch uh, on the, the tar sand situation in any way? Indeed. Uh, Derek O'Keefe, 
who is a Vancouver-based writer and a Canadian Dimension Collective member. Uh, he weaves the theme of degrowth into a discussion of the need for more determined resistance to the environmental disaster that is the, uh, that is the tar sands. And he also talks about his impressions of Vancouver's first degrowth conference. And then um, Cy, of course, Saigonic, Canadian Dimension founder and publisher and economist, he's written a very measured and informative review of Richard Heinberg's book, The End of Growth. And uh, he assesses it mostly favorably, but he does take issue with uh, Heinberg's assumption that degrowth is compatible with a reformed capitalism. Just as a, a final thought, I mean, can you know, banking as we know it survive uh, in a world where uh, growth is effectively eliminated? Um, Since banks do need to, uh, in order to function, they need to get an interest back on uh, their loans, so that hence the, uh, the call for growth, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is a good question, but I think I think there are answers to the question. Uh, that the nature of banking itself can be called into question. The type of banking system can be called into question. Um, one of the one of the principles of the degrowth movement tends to be relocalization, which is basing um, the food system and production systems on a more local level to make them more sustainable. And so there might be some kind of local banking system that could be set up that might avert some of the problems that you mentioned. On the other hand, I'm not an economist, so I can't answer that question. There are two conferences coming up in Canada where I bet that question will be debated. Um, one in Montreal in May and another in Vancouver in 2012. Uh, the one in Montreal is called the International Conference on Degrowth in the Americas, and it's going to be hosting uh, a number of distinguished scholars, including the Spanish ecological economist uh, John Martinez Allier and the U.S. economist Juliet Shore. So um, if people are interested in, in the degrowth issue between the library, the internet, the conferences, and the latest issue of Canadian Dimension, everyone can get informed and involved in the debate. Andrea Levy, thank you very much for uh, sharing this information about uh, our upcoming issue. We look forward to looking at it. Thank you so much. And uh, Alert has been speaking with Andrea Levy. She is the uh, contributor for Canadian Dimension magazine and is the editor of this March-April edition and its focus on degrowth. Hi, this is Mitch Pollock. This is Music is the Weapon. This being the Easter season, the minds of religious people usually either turn to the thoughts of Passover or to the Resurrection, but every year at this time, my mind turns to history because I'm always reminded when I hear the word Easter of the Easter Rebellion in Dublin where Irish people stood up against British imperialism and fought for their own independence. Here to start is Tommy Makem with his absolutely classic nationalist song for Green Fields.
was the late Tommy Makeham singing his great composition for Greenfields. Every time I hear it, I become an Irish nationalist. It's a very powerful piece of writing. 
Some wag once said that Ireland was full of sad love songs and happy songs of war. It's really interesting how your head can turn around the situation you're in and write a great piece of work sometimes, or the situation creates a song. Ireland had the British occupation for a couple hundred years or more, and they produced an extraordinary body of great music. Here again is Tommy Makeham and the Clancy Brothers from an album that they made about 1960 of nothing but rebel songs. Here they are with The Rising of the Moon. Then tell me, Sean O'Farrell, tell me why you hurry so. Hush me, Buckle, hush and listen, and his cheeks were all aglow. I bear orders from the captain, get you ready quick and soon. For the pikes must be together by the rising of the moon. By the rising of the moon, by the rising of the moon. For the pipes must be together by the rising of the moon. Oh, then tell me, Sean O'Farrell, where the gathering is to be. In the old spot by the river, right well known to you and me. One word more for signal token, whistle up the marching tune. With your pike upon your shoulder by the rising of the moon. By the rising of the moon. By the rising of the moon With your pike upon your shoulder By the rising of the moon Out of many a mud wall cabin Eyes were watching through the night Many a manly heart was throbbing For the coming morning light Murmurs ran along the valleys like the banshee's lonely croon, and a thousand pikes were flashing by the rising of the moon. By the rising of the moon, by the rising of the moon, and a thousand pikes were flashing by the rising of the moon. There beside the singing river that dark mass of men was seen, Far above their shining weapons hung their own beloved green. Dead to every foe and traitor, forward strike the marching tune. And our army buys for freedom, tis the rising of the moon. sat within the valley green I sat me with my true love My sad heart strove the two between the old love and the new love The old for her the new that made me think on Ireland While soft the wind blew down the glen And shook the golden barley T'was hard the woeful words to frame To break the ties that bound us But harder still to bear the shame 
the foreign chains around us. And so I said, the mountain glen, I'll seek at morning early, and join the bold united men, while soft winds shake the barley. While sad I kissed away her tears, my fond arms round her flinging. The foeman shot burst on our ears from out the wildwood ringing. A bullet pierced my true love's side in life's young spring so And on my breast in blood she died While soft winds shook the barley But blood for blood without remorse I've taken at Ullart Hollow And laid my true love's clay-cold corpse Where I full soon may follow As round her grave I wander drear Noon, night and morning early With breaking heart whenever I hear That shakes the body. The minstrel boy to the war is gone in the ranks of death. You will find him. His father's sword he has girded on, and his wild heart slung behind. Land of song, say the warrior apart Though all the world betrays thee One sword, at least thy rights shall guard One faithful heart shall praise thee The minstrel fell Bring that proud soul under The harp he loved ne'er spoke again For he tore its cords asunder And said no chain shall sully thee Thou soul of love and bravery Thy songs were made for the pure and free They shall never sound in The Minstrel Boy 
the wind that shakes the barley, and the rising of the moon sung by Tommy Makem and the Clancy Brothers from their very first album that they made as they began their careers. They continued on, of course, to become major stars in the music business, and as they grew in stature, they never forgot their origins and they never forgot their politics about Ireland and later on they recorded this wonderful tribute to the rebellion of 1916. Once again, here is Tommy Makem and the Clancy Brothers. Since the British first came to Ireland centuries ago, almost every generation of Irishmen have tried to gain their freedom. And although they failed, they kept alive the spirit of nationalism in the country. And in 1916, Easter of that year, when 1,200 men marched into the streets of Dublin and raised the Irish flag over the General Post Office, it was the beginning of the end of British rule in Ireland. Up the Republic, they raised their banner and cry. Here, St. MacDermot will pay for you on high. Eager and ready for love of you, they out march the soldiers of the rear guard, legion of the rear guard, and Spain Ireland's fall. Hark, the martial tramp is heard from far to Donegal. Wolf, Horn, and Emmet guide you, though your task be Fighting in that rebellion only lasted a little over a week. The rebellion failed, and 16 of its leaders, mostly young men, some of them poets, were taken to Kilmainham Jail, where they were executed by firing squad. The execution of these young men, instead of ending the trouble in Ireland, only caused a widespread spirit of rebellion throughout the country. Was down the glen one Easter morn to a city fair or There Ireland's lines of marching men in squadrons passed me by. No fight did hum and no Dr. Yates lived in Dublin at that time, and when he saw what was happening, he changed his whole attitude towards Irish nationalism. He wrote this poem, Easter 1916. I have met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter and desk among grey 18th century houses. I have passed with a nod of the head or polite, meaningless words, and listened a while and said polite, meaningless words. Or thought of a tailor a jibe to please a companion round the fire of the club. Been certain that they and I but lived where a motley is warm. All changed. Changed. 
changed utterly. That terrible beauty is Right proudly high over Dublin town, they hung out a flag of war. Twas better to die neath an Irish sky than that Suvla or Sudelba. And from the plains of Ryal Sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. When may it suffice? That is heaven's part. Our part to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child when sleep at last has come and limbs that have burned wild. What is it but nightfall? No, no, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream, and not to know they dreamed, and are dead. And what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in a verse. MacDonough and MacBride and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be wherever green is worn or changed. Changed utterly, a terrible beauty is born. The bravest fell and the sullen bell rang mournfully and clear. For those who died that Easter time, in the springing of the year And the world did gaze in deep amaze At those fearless men and true Who bore the fight that freedom's light Might shine through the foggy The men of that rebellion from all walks of life, different trades and professions. One of them, Padder Carney, was a balladeer. He wrote the Soldier's Song, which was to become the Irish National Anthem. He also wrote this little satire, poking fun at Mother England. It's called God Bless England. I'll tell you a tale of peace and love, whack for the diddle all the died all day. Of the land that rules all lands above, whack for the diddle all the died all day. May peace and plenty be her share, who kept our homes from want and care. God bless England is our prayer. Whack for the diddle all the died all day, whack for the diddle all the died all day. So we say, hip hooray, come and listen while we pray. Whack for the diddle all the died all day. But our fathers oft were naughty boys, whack for the diddle all the died all day. For pikes and guns are dangerous ties, whack for the diddle all the died all day. From Bellinahabwee unto Peter's Hill, we made poor England cry her fill. 
But old Britannia loves us still. Whack on the diddle of the day, do day. Whack on the diddle of the day, do day. So we say, Henry, come and listen while we pray. Whack on the diddle of the day, do day. Now Irish men forget the past. Whack for the diddle all the died old day. And think of a day that's coming fast. Whack for the diddle all the died old day. When we will all be civilized, neat and clean and well advised. Won't Mother England be surprised? Whack for the diddle all the died old day. Whack for the diddle all the died old day. So we say, hooray, come and listen while we pray. Whack for the diddle all the died old day. After the execution of the leaders of the rebellion, fighting spread all over Ireland. And in five short years, we had at least partial independence. And those young men who had been executed became martyrs and heroes. Songs were written about them, songs that were very appropriate at the time, like soldiers of the rearguard, but more appropriate today as the struggle goes on. Glorious the morning, proclaim and shut and shell. Down on the island, your sons will love you well. Let's tell the men you go get their prison cell. Wait for the soldiers of the rear guard, legion of the rear guard, and spread Ireland's call. That was Tommy Makem and the Clancy Brothers in their tribute to the Rebellion of 1916. That's it for this week, folks. I'm Mitch Pinolik. This is Music is a Weapon. Solidarity. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again or to hear any of our past shows, Go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producers are Michael Welch and Tommy Allen. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik with technical production by Andrew Valby. I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.